Let's turn on our Bibles tonight to the book of Hosea. On Sunday uh, evenings, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and now we come this evening to the book of Hosea. Allow me a kind of an introduction to this section of uh, the Old Testament and then a, a short introduction related to Hosea before we get into the message um, itself. Uh, with the book of Hosea, we begin a section of the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. When the Jews speak of uh, their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, they refer to it as the Law and the Prophets, uh, made up principally of those two great divisions, the Law of Moses and then the pronouncements of the Prophets. And of course, there are the historical books that are part of uh, the Old Testament, and also the poetic books, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and, and so forth. But as we come now into the book of Hosea, the, the prophets is divided into two sections, it is a, a, a dominant division of the Old Testament, and the prophets are divided into the major prophets, which is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the minor prophets, there are 12 of them beginning with Hosea. They are referred to as the minor prophets, not because they're of less importance than the major prophets, but because by and large they are uh, shorter in their length, significantly shorter. Though it is interesting to realize that the book of Hosea, the one we study, begin studying tonight, is uh, larger than the book of Daniel, but it is... Uh, uh, extraordinary among the, the minor prophets um, in that uh, regard. The, the theme of the book of Hosea is Hosea prophesied to uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. You might remember in, uh, as we went through the historical books that following the death of Solomon, David's son, that the kingdom uh, of uh, Israel is a nation divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the northern kingdom being Israel, the southern kingdom being Judah. And uh, uh, Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, he decided to tax the, more, the people uh, more harshly than his father did, treating the people in a very poor way. And uh, the northern tribes broke off from Benjamin and from Judah, and uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was established. Beyond the taxation issue was the fact that God had intended to uh, take these ten tribes away from the oversight of Solomon's lineage at that point because of the greatness of his idolatry and, and his uh, wickedness. And so Hosea speaks now to that northern uh, uh, kingdom, and uh, God pleads through Hosea to the northern kingdom of Israel uh, for them to return to him uh, and to be saved. Now the big picture here, in order to get our bearings a little bit in, in terms of the, the entire uh, book before we start to get into the details, is that God likens his relationship with Israel to, uh, in the Old Testament to a husband. Uh, the imagery in the New Testament for us in our relationship with Christ is that he is the groom and we are the bride of Christ. The Old Testament imagery for uh, the, the children of Israel under that covenant with, uh, with God the Father was that he represented the husband and they represented uh, the, the bride. And so here now, <clears throat> because of the apostasy and the sin of the northern kingdom uh, of Israel, 
uh, God likens his relationship with Israel to a husband uh, who is married to a continually adulterous wife, and ultimately a husband who is married to a prostitute. And, uh, and uh, uh, pretty significant imagery. And, uh, and, uh, and the uh, violation of the Old Testament covenant that was uh, on the part of the children of Israel toward uh, God uh, as a result of that. In the relationship between the Lord and Israel, it's likened to a relationship between a husband and a wife uh, because they were joined together by covenant in the same way that a husband and wife are joined by a covenant, by marriage vows that are made on the day of their marriage. And that covenant was uh, that mutual commitment they made to one another. The covenant was a commitment to the law of Moses. And uh, here is the northern kingdom of Israel who is absolutely violating the marriage vows, so to speak, in uh, unimaginable ways. And so again, God the Father is the husband and Israel is his wife. Now, Israel was violating that covenant in, in her uh, rampant idolatry, in her rampant uh, worship of the other gods, and uh, God viewed this as spiritual adultery that was being committed uh, against him. It was an expression of a spiritual uh, unfaithfulness to the spiritual relationship between Israel uh, and between God. And that's the imagery that God gives, is that what they were doing uh, spiritually and worshiping all of these other things, committing the sin that they were committing, is they were committing adultery against him, spiritual adultery, in the relationship that they had committed uh, to. Now, of course, physical adultery is one of the most painful uh, violations of trust and intimacy that any person will ever experience in life. And here, God takes, and not as hyperbole or exaggeration, but he takes this imagery and he likens uh, the effect of spiritual adultery upon him to uh, what a physical adultery and the impact of it would be upon the violated uh, partner in a in a physical marriage. It's important to realize that in our relationship with God as Christians, being the bride of Christ, that um, it, is, it is to speak the obvious, but sometimes the obvious needs to be spoken, is that in this relationship that we have with God, that there are two people within the relationship. And so we live in a culture that is very, very selfish, very, very self-centered, makes us believe that we're the most important thing in the whole world and we can do what we darn well please and everybody just has to put up, uh, up with it and they'll be glad to. And, uh, and then sometimes what happens is we forget about the fact that in this spiritual relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, as is the case in any marriage relationship, everything that we do has an effect upon the health of that relationship. And Israel had long ago ceased to have any concern about uh, the effect that their sin and their idolatry would have upon God as one who is committed to that marriage relationship uh, with them and the vulnerability of that uh, in the same way as it relates to uh, husband and wife being uh, married. And so Hosea was to represent uh, God in his relationship uh, with Israel, and uh, because of their 
spiritual condition, it would require that Hosea would marry a harlot because Israel was at this time a spiritual harlot. And so even though the book of Hosea is a very, very strong expose of the wickedness and the unfaithfulness of the northern kingdom of Israel, and God brings it out very, very strongly, He brings out one message even more strongly. Uh, And that is his love, the love of God for Israel, uh, his commitment to the relationship, even though they treated it like uh, uh, dirt, and his commitment to it despite all of their uh, failures, and his commitment to bring them, bring us back uh, to repentance from any backsliding, and then to restore health to the relationship. As I mentioned with the imagery that's used here, is a, a, a moment here in the morning services. In the New Testament, the Bible speaks about the single greatest demonstration of God's love in human history, and nothing else approaches it. And that is the death of His Son upon the cross to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And that cross, as Paul wrote, uh, God demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And you notice it doesn't say that God demonstrated, past tense, his love for us, uh, though it was a demonstration in the past. The point is that it continues to be a demonstration. There is no demonstration of the love of God, past, present, future, toward mankind than the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. So related to our salvation. Now, and and when it says demonstrates, the idea is to put God's love in its best light. And uh, the classic illustration is if you go into a jewelry store and you say, I'd like to see your best diamonds. And uh, I run from jewelry stores, but if you were ever to do that, uh, they don't bring the diamonds out and then just throw them out on the glass counter. Always they'll bring out a black velvet cloth or a deep purple velvet cloth, put the diamonds on it so that you can see the diamonds in their best light against the darkness of the background. And it is the darkness of our sin and what we know ourselves to be that causes the beauty of what Jesus did for us on the cross to shine out even uh, greater. Here you have an image related to uh, the love of God that shows people who are already in relationship with God. And, uh, and what he does is of necessity for us to see the greatness of his love and his appreciation for us, even after we've begun a relationship with him, is to take and put his commitment to the relationship with Israel against the, the uh, dark uh, uh, purple velvet uh, of their sin. So he brings both of them both forward in powerful ways, and we want to learn from both of them. But the single great message is the greatness of God's love uh, and of, of his mercy uh, toward us. In verse 1, we're told, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so even though he will prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel, 
he lists the kings of Israel that would be, um, would be the kings during the period of his uh, prophesying. Hosea prophesies for a period of about 70 years, and he lives long enough to see the fulfillment of his prophecies uh, and the judgment of God to come on the northern kingdom of Israel in the form of uh, the Assyrians defeating them and taking them uh, into captivity. So he names the, the northern kings uh, of Judah, and then he, uh, he prophesied also in the days of Jeroboam, uh, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Hosea's name means salvation, and it's very, very uh, appropriate uh, for his name related to the prophecy that the Lord uh, entrusts to him here uh, because uh, in his prophecy he is going to declare that Israel's ultimate salvation is going to occur uh, at Jesus' second coming uh, when he establishes his millennial kingdom. And uh, so here is the context, the period of time in which he, uh, he ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel, about 573 B.C., uh, to a time just before the fall of Israel in 722 uh, B.C. A very, very dark period in Israel's his- northern kingdom of Israel's history, and the northern kingdom of Israel's history was completely dark. The uh, uh, northern kingdom of Israel never had one good king, not one good godly king in the eyes uh, of the Lord. So when you're talking about a dark time in their history, you're talking about a very, very uh, dark time uh, in their history. Hosea was a contemporary of the prophet Amos uh, in uh, ministering uh, as they both did to Israel in the north and also contemporaries of Micah and Isaiah who were ministering to Judah in the south. Jonah was ministering at the same time, but his message, of course, was uh, uh, directed toward uh, the Nineveh and, and the Assyrians. And so God begins now the imagery form, uh, formally here and of now calling on Hosea not only to deliver a message from God, but to live a message before the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Lord, so if you ever want to be a prophet, uh, count the cost. And when the Lord began to speak uh, by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take a wife of harlotry, go marry a prostitute, and, uh, and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry departing from me. So he was instructed as a prophet to go and marry a, a harlot. This would have been absolutely uh, appalling uh, in Israel to the average Jew, uh, probably appalling in any age, but certainly appalling among the Jews. And when they see Hosea as a prophet going and marrying a prostitute, the thing that they would then go to Hosea and ask him the obvious question, and that is, why in the world are you marrying a prostitute? Nobody in their right mind would, uh, would marry an active prostitute, and uh, all of which would then allow uh, Hosea to then declare to the people of Israel 
that this is how God viewed their, their relationship with Him presently and, uh, and that the relationship that they had with God spiritually with their sin and idolatry was as uh, equally appalling in heaven as this would be on earth. An absolute scandal uh, in, in, uh, in heaven. Well, we all know what physical adultery um, is, but what is spiritual adultery um, actually? And spiritual adultery uh, it, it speaks of the fact if I as a Christian and a child of God, if I have a price, if there is something that the world or someone can offer me to become unfaithful in my relationship with Jesus Christ and with God the Father, um, then that thing becomes uh, an idol in my life. That thing then leads me into uh, spiritual uh, adultery. And so uh, anything that will make me walk away from my relationship with Jesus Christ and obedience to His uh, Lordship in my life. In the ancient world, they, of course, had physical uh, idols that they would put uh, in their homes and they would uh, worship uh, these idols. And the idols represented a a deity that was behind those lowercase g, God, uh, that that the idol uh, uh, represented. And so they worshiped these physical idols that were fashioned out of wood and stone or silver and gold. And, uh, for instance, uh, there was the worship a great deal of it going on, and God's going to deal with it with the northern kingdom of Israel. They worshipped an idol by, uh, called Baal, and Baal was the god of nature. They could believe that he was in control of nature, but he was also uh, considered to be uh, the god uh, of, uh, of the human intellect, where all of the ideas of, uh, of man and, and uh, the elevation of the intellect of man. And so, Uh, The worship of Baal would be the worship of nature. It would be the worship of the philosophies or the religions or the ideas that uh, mankind comes up with as the idea of of this is the meaning of life, this is the supreme purpose of life, uh, this is what God is like, and so forth. And then to buy into those things rather than how God defines those things in His Word. There's also the worship of Molech which was uh, the god of pleasure, the god of fun, and so making pleasure and fun the master passion uh, of our lives. And so if you ever lived in a nation where Molech was its god, I mean, imagine, uh, uh, but that's what would happen is that uh, here was happening in in Israel, also among the Jewish people was the worship of Molech, the worship of pleasure, the worship of fun. I have made that the supreme aim of my life. Uh, and made that the supreme aim of my life, even as, as a Christian. And, and this is spiritual adultery. And then there was the god Mammon, who was the god of money and the god of power. And so making the accumulation of money and power the master passion of my life. And again, uh, the, the, with all of these kind of idolatries, which we recognize are epidemic within, within our culture, but because our modern culture doesn't attach a physical idol to it, uh, it largely goes undetected as idolatry. But it is idolatry. 
And today in our Western world, we can uh, look down on, you know, kind of the, the primitiveness and the brutishness of these, uh, these ancient peoples who, who actually, you know, worshipped an idol and think of ourselves as being uh, superior to the, to the ancients. And I would contend that the exact opposite is true, that I- idolatry has become so prevalent and so shameless and so bold today that we don't even feel the need to create a physical object and attempt to legitimize the worship of our sin. And so we've dispensed with the pretense of a God uh, and, and now just openly worship self and sin uh, unashamedly. And so because our worship of sin doesn't involve a a religious object in, in our homes or something like that, some physical idol, uh, we, we don't think of our sin as idolatry, but it is. So idolatry is the worship of any created thing. And there are two categories in all of the universe. And the categories are, number one, creator. It's a category of one, three persons, but one, a category of one, God, and then there is the creation. And any time a person moves, even as a Christian, from the worship of the Creator to the creation, then that is idolatry that's being engaged in, as Paul brings out uh, so perfectly as he uh, talked about uh, worshiping the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore in his, his letter to uh, the Romans. Now, so that we don't fall asleep as Christians to this danger in our lives and, and think that, well, boy, I, this is, I'm glad I went through Hosea so I could know a little bit more about those people, you know, 2,000 plus years ago. Boy, they were awful. And, and, uh, but so we don't fall asleep to this danger in our own lives. Uh, the power of God's condemnation uh, of this among his people. Uh, please let me uh, give you verse 2 in the absolute clarity of uh, the Jerusalem Bible. And it reads, Go, marry a whore and get children with a whore, for the country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning Yahweh. And that's the strength of the passage and what God uh, uh, commissions uh, here Hosea uh, to do. And it's heavy. It's heavy and it's intended to be heavy. And I don't know about you, but I suspect you're a lot like me. But it does mean no harm to view spiritual unfaithfulness as a whoredom in my life. And, and it's important in my life for raising a standard and to remind me that I am in a relationship with God that He is fully and purely committed to, and I don't want to harm that relationship uh, in any, any way. And so I allow it to, uh, to search me, and I allow the strength of those words to uh, make me not get lost within the culture that I live in, and even the Christian culture of the United States of America, where these kind of things are viewed as uh, nothing virtually today. But God says they are something. And the standard needs to stay high, uh, stay high in our lives. Verse 3 goes on here and 
Hosea has received the instruction and now he proceeds to obey it. And so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now there are a couple of views related to Gomer here. And uh, first is that she, uh, this, that, uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that she was a harlot at the time of the marriage but that God anticipated the fact that she would become uh, a harlot, and so he speaks of it uh, as if uh, she was already what she would ultimately uh, uh, become. In other words, the idea would be, go take yourself a wife who will prove to be unfaithful. And so uh, she would have children of harlotry in the sense that that they would be tainted and and forever uh, polluted by Uh, her future prostitution. And uh, in other words, God chose Israel, brought them into uh, this blessed relationship with himself, likened to the uh, marriage bond, and while in this state, she committed uh, spiritual adultery, physical adultery, but representing that. The second view is that Gomer was a harlot already, and uh, and perhaps even having children as, as a result of her harlotry, And uh, this is the most straightforward way to understand uh, the passage if we're uh, not trying to protect uh, Western sensibilities and how can we have any Western sensibilities when we have no sensibilities left at all related to sin. It's like we're mortified by something, you know, in the scriptures and, and, uh, and, and all hell is uh, broken loose all around us. Uh, all day and and uh, and all of his uh, all of his uh, wickedness. It, it, we probably shouldn't view her as a kind of a street walking uh, prostitute, but probably someone who gave herself uh, away to men uh, uh, in order to uh, receive gifts from them and probably even depending uh, upon those gifts from her uh, lovers. Now, God begins to describe his rejection of Israel and he illustrates it by the naming of Hosea's uh, three children with Gomer. And then the Lord uh, said to him, uh, uh, with this, uh, uh, and, and so they, she bore, uh, 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 conceived and bore a son. And so the Lord said concerning the naming of the son, call his name Jezreel, and, uh, which means God will scatter. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And so uh, here would be another name. I don't know how many people you went to school with. And, uh, and they called uh, the role at the beginning of the school year and you heard somebody called Jezreel. Probably not very likely. It would be unusual uh, to name a child Jezreel. But once again, it was a way of gaining the attention, not just with what Hosea was speaking, but what the life that he was living. And so people would say, wait a second, you've, you're, uh, you've got a, you're breaking our minds here a little bit. You, you marry a harlot, and then you have a child, and, and, and when you have a child, you then name him Jezreel, that God will scatter. What kind of a name is that to burden a child with? Why would you name a child Jezreel? God will scatter. 
And then it would give him an opportunity to speak to the fact that God is going to scatter the northern kingdom of Israel because of your sin and your idolatry and your wickedness and your spiritual unfaithfulness uh, to, um, uh, uh, to God. And, uh, and then Hosea had a second child, and Gomer conceived again, bore a daughter, and God said to him, call her name uh, Lo-Ruhamah, uh, uh, which means no mercy or no pity, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yes, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them uh, by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. And so the second child is named uh, unpitied. Uh, Again, the same progression of questions would be asked of him, giving the opportunity to speak to them and say, God's judgment is going to come upon you without pity because of the way that you treat his relationship with you uh, like, uh, like dirt, and you'll, you will go into uh, captivity. And so God's patience with, uh, with Israel had come to an end, and judgment was going to come uh, upon, uh, upon her. And so every time uh, they saw Jezreel out on the streets, every time they saw Gomer out on the streets, every time they saw Lo-Ruhama uh, on the streets, all of these my, uh, names and the meaning of them would come to their mind about uh, their future. Now it is interesting in verse 7 that here God differentiates between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel would go into captivity to the Assyrians a hundred years before the southern kingdom of uh, uh, Israel would go into kingdom with the Assyrians, a hundred years before the southern kingdom of Judah would go into captivity to the Babylonians. And uh, so when Assyria came into Israel, invaded it, the northern kingdom, and took it captive, they then endeavored to go down into Judah and Jerusalem and take uh, the southern kingdom as well. And you might remember when we went through the historical books that they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and, uh, and uh, for all intents and purposes, just about to take it. They had 185,000 Assyrian soldiers surrounding the entire uh, city and then on that night, God provided a deliverance in the form of an angel that went forth and slew himself, the entirety of the 185,000 um, members of that Assyrian army, and, uh, and uh, kept them from conquering the southern kingdom, even as God had declared here that he would save Jerusalem, he would save Judah, not by bow, not by sword or battle or horses or horsemen, not by their own strength. I'll protect them supernaturally. And one of the great miracles of the Old Testament uh, that took place. Now, when she had uh, weaned, uh, Gomer had uh, low uh, uh, Ruhama, he, she conceived and bore a son. And then God said uh, to Hosea, uh, call his name Lo-Ami, and Lo-Ami means not my people, uh, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So again, here's this unusual name again that represented God's message 
to the northern kingdom. They would, uh, uh, why in the world would you name a child Loami? And, and then uh, uh, Hosea would speak to them and say, God says, you are not my people and I will not uh, be uh, your uh, God. Now, God wasn't ending his covenant with Israel. And Hosea brings this out a little bit further as, as you go, go forward in here. But God is not done with the Jews in terms of his prophetic plan and his purposes. Everybody, Jew and Gentile, is saved the same way through faith in Christ. But he, 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 was, he wasn't through with the Jews. The Messiah hasn't even come into human history yet. And that, that was one of the severity of the sins of the Jewish people, was they were putting that in, in, in jeopardy, the birth of Jesus, by monkeying around in this way, instead of staying serious about God's purpose for them in, in human history. And, uh, and so uh, he, he's just declaring that they weren't his people in the sense that they might be physical descendants of Abraham, but they weren't even the tiniest bit related to Abraham or related to God uh, spiritually. They, he no longer recognized them in that way uh, as uh, his own. Now, somewhere in here, uh, following verse 9 here, uh, most Bible co- uh, commentators and Bible scholars believe that uh, this was a time period when uh, Gomer abandons Hosea once again for harlotry, uh, leaves him, and that, uh, that Lo-Ami was conceived while Gomer uh, was engaged in adultery. So she leaves him perhaps even before the conception of this child, and that the child really is not even Hosea's, and uh, which would make uh, the message even uh, uh, more profound, but it's a sanctified uh, 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 speculation, but it could very, very, very well be true, and it kind of sets the stage for chapter 3 when, when uh, uh, God commands Hosea to go back and buy uh, Gomer out of uh, her, uh, her prostitution uh, once again and call her to, uh, to return to him. And then God is, and he's so remarkable in this way as he gets into verse 10, just about when uh, you're going to just go under just the sheer weight of the heaviness of this, this entire uh, situation here. God loves happy endings, and he works toward happy endings, and he works mightily toward happy endings. And you know one of the great tools that he has for working toward happy endings among his people? It's called chastening. Uh, the chasing of the Lord. And, uh, and so he's going to discipline them uh, uh, as his, uh, his children uh, until uh, they realize this is nonsense what they're doing and ultimately uh, they repent. And so he comes to that subject uh, uh, now, uh, this message of hope beginning in verse 10 that one day they will repent, God will uh, 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 win in their lives and there'll be a, a, a restoration, a complete reversal of where things were presently. And that's a wonderful word there uh, when God uses it concerning our lives, especially uh, coming out of a backslide or even the backslider in heart. Uh, yet the number 
uh, of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured uh, or numbered. And, uh, and so God speaks of the fact of a restoration when uh, they, they will be innumerable in terms of the size of their population. People are all concerned about population, size of population, all that uh, today and all. Having a large population in a nation in the ancient world was a, a blessing and considered to be a blessing uh, from, uh, from God. And, uh, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons uh, of the living God. And so God is going to change things from where they are, where he's calling them, you are not my people, to calling them uh, his, uh, his uh, children. Now, there will be a, a partial and a near fulfillment of, of this in the restoration of of uh, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah back into the land after uh, the Babylonian captivity. But the, 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 f- the fullest f- uh, fulfillment will be far, and it will occur at the time of Jesus' second coming when the Jewish people recognize him in mass uh, as the Messiah. And then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. And so God speaks of the fact that uh, at the end of this great chastening, there'll be one nation again, no longer the, the, the divided uh, kingdom. And, uh, and so when he talks about uh, coming under a uh, uh, and a point for them in verse 11, uh, for themselves one head, that one head is a reference to uh, the Messiah, speaking of Jesus. And so fulfilling the promise to David that, that a, a, an everlasting throne uh, 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 will be fulfilled. And so uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the end times aspect of it, and they shall come up out of the land. And then very significantly, that last sentence in that final verse, for great will be the day of uh, Jezreel. And uh, so the greatness of this uh, eschatological or the end times day of Jezreel uh, in terms of all of this pointing uh, to the coming Messiah, some aspect of the Messiah's work, um, the Jezreel Valley is the valley uh, that uh, we know as uh, the site of Armageddon, the, the valley of, uh, of Armageddon there, and the site of Jesus' battle at the time of his second coming. And so they'd come up out of the land, probably meaning out of the great dispersion that they will experience during the great tribulation, and uh, they will return and regain control of their own territory and, uh, and head then into uh, the kingdom age. And so uh, God says in the first verse of chapter 2, is it's the same self-contained thought, say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. And so uh, at that time, in the fullest sense, they, they will be uh, Ami, which means my people, no longer lo Ami, not my people. Uh, they will be uh, Ruhama, uh, which is mercy is shown, rather than lo Ruhama, which means no mercy is shown. And so everything is going to uh, flip with their recognition of Jesus uh, as the Messiah. 
Now, as we head into uh, verse uh, 2 here in the next thought of of chapter 2, God confronts Israel with her spiritual harlotry and her adultery, and he warns them of uh, his future judgment that is going to come upon them as a result of it. So uh, here you have Hosea, his children and his wife are kind of this living parable, living message to the nation, but that wasn't the only message. Uh, Hosea also spoke prophetically as the Lord instructed him. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, uh, nor am I her husband. And so here God uh, declares that he's through with Israel in a sense. He disclaims her as, as his, uh, his wife. And, uh, uh, and, and Israel is referred to as the mother. Uh, the children uh, of your mother are the individual members of the nation. So he's talking about his displeasure with the entire nation, how widespread uh, the, the sin was. So he's bringing formal charges against her at this point, as might be in like a divorce court, as uh, charges against her. Uh, sin for the the reason for the breakdown uh, of the marriage, the grounds for the divorce, so to speak. But again, with the the qualification, the realization is that he is not saying that he is through with her, uh, uh, but uh, he is through with her in her current condition until he brings her to a, a place of repentance. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her uh, adulteries from between her breasts. And so uh, the, the Lord calls upon her to, uh, Israel to uh, cease her spiritual adultery against him, uh, lest I strip her naked and expose her as she, uh, as in the day she was born. And so he promised they do all of this in secret and, and I will uh, expose her sin and bring it out into the open and make her like a wilderness and set her like a, a dry land and slay her with thirst. I'm going to bring a desolation into her, uh, into her life and a spiritual desolation into her life uh, as a result of her unfaithfulness to me. You remember David when he sinned with Bathsheba and he wrote those uh, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 that came out of it and he talked about the dryness that was in him and, uh, and as he was, instead of repenting of his sin, as he was holding it back in and trying to pretend, hope that time would heal it rather than confession and repentance and uh, the dryness that he felt in that and, uh, and she would, in a physical level, but a spiritual level too. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For her mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has, believed sh- has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. And so he speaks to her um, in kind of a last-ditch effort to wake them up if they didn't care anything about their relationship with Him, with God. Surely they would care about the consequences of their sin upon their children, but they didn't. And here he speaks about the terrible price that the children would pay for the spiritual adultery uh, of, 
of the, uh, the parents, the effect of it on the children. And therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but will not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. And so God promises, and this is actually a very, very uh, beautiful promise in verses 6 and 7, is he promises, I'm going to make you unsuccessful in your sin. I'm going to make you unsuccessful in your spiritual adultery. And, and he does that. One of, the, one of the great things, and there are so many great things about being a Christian, is that we are forever ruined in terms of ever going back to whatever sin we enjoyed and enjoying it again in the same measure. Sin is pleasurable for a season. There's no doubt about that. But always to have tasted of the Lord, to have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to have had some reality with God in that way, and to go back into those situations and think that they will uh, give us what they once gave us, God said, I'll make sure you won't enjoy it. I, I'll make sure that there'll be no pleasure for you uh, in it. And if you won't slam the door, I'll do what I can to slam the door. And it's, it's wonderful. I, th- I, I, I'm, I, I should say, you know, be, be careful when you think you stand lest you fall, of course. But I'm never tempted to go back to my former life. I'm just not. Um, I just have the recognition that it's what I got saved out of. And, uh, and I wanted to get saved out of it, and I just have this sneaking suspicion it'll be exactly like uh, when I left it. <laughs> Lousy. And, um, uh, and, and so, but it, it does help to have this added kind of uh, wall of protection when there might be a strong temptation to retor- return to some kind of parting or drug or alcohol or or uh, whatever it might be, and, and to look at it and to remember, uh, you may go back, but you will not enjoy it, and God will make sure. And it's uh, one of the beauties of him. And then, and then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. And so the light will go on for her, and uh, she will, in, in the course of this chastening, uh, as, as Israel would, the light would go on. I had it much better in my life, uh, uh, married to the Lord, so to speak, than the life that I now have with all of these lovers. And uh, so she'll re- resolve to return uh, to him. And so uh, that recognition of, man, when I knew God and when we walked with God, life was never better uh, than, than that. And that's a great light to have go on. For she did not know, as she was ascribing all of the material wealth in her life and all of these things that she was uh, uh, um, prostituting herself for, for she did not know that I gave her the grain, uh, the new wine, the oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which she then prepared for Baal. So uh, here, God, God is providing her with all of these blessings and um, all of these material blessings in her life. And she just took all of this prosperity and then used it as an opportunity to offer uh, it to these false gods. And so God says, in essence, I'm going to, in the same way that a husband or a wife might in a, in a, a marriage situation that is, is, is adulterous, I'm going to turn the spigot off 
and uh, I'm going to dry up your supply. I am not going to support you physically in what you're doing here in this. And so God promises to do that, uh, uh, that to her in order to get uh, her uh, attention. And therefore, I will return and take away. And you notice she's talking about uh, a little bit earlier there in uh, uh, verse uh, 5. She's talking about my bread, my grain, my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, my drink. And then God uh, gives Israel a wake-up call. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and will take away my wool and my linen and, uh, uh, and uh, given to cover her uh, nakedness. And so God reminds her that all of the blessings that she had, it, it, uh, all of it came from him. Not a single bit of it came from these false gods that she was prostituting herself for. And now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will deliver her from uh, my hand. And so God promises to uh, expose her, uh, her, her lewdness. In other words, expose her, um, uh, what would be the word? Just, just her awful uh, conduct in her relationship with God and, and how she treated God um, in, uh, in that relationship. And I will also cause all of her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all of her feasts. Remember, at this particular point in time, their uh, religion was in high gear in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, they had all kinds of idolatry going on, and a lot of things that they were doing in the worship of their God, they would then include uh, the Lord in it as a uh, and keep these feast days and new moons and Sabbaths. And they had just basically formed a, uh, a very corrupted version of Judaism in their idolatry there in the north. And God says, I'm going to bring an end to all of it. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field uh, shall um, eat them. God says, I will destroy everything and remove from your life everything you committed spiritual adultery uh, in order to gain in life. I'm not going to let you go through this thing, do this, and then benefit. Every benefit that you gained by compromising the relationship with me I'm going to make sure that that slips completely through, uh, through your uh, hands. And I will punish her for the days of the Baals uh, 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 to which she burned incense. She decked herself in her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. I mean, it's just amazing. Here he is, he sees and, and the lewdness that was involved in the worship of these gods, the, um, the, the sexual immorality the, uh, and all of it that was going on. And, and God looks at the whole scene. Everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, he looks at all of it and he says, they left me for that. And, and again, the scandal that this uh, uh, would have been uh, in, uh, in, in heaven is, as all, all of heaven looks at that 
looks at that particular scene. And so he promises to bring an, an end to it. And then again, uh, God s- jumps to the future. He knows he's going to chasten them, chasten them mightily. They will turn back to him. It'll take a lot, but they will turn back to him. And he speaks of a more hopeful day and a future day. And this, of course, is, uh, parallels the great hope that God gives to us in terms of uh, backsliding. When there's uh, the, uh, uh, the backs, uh, a person backslides, a Christian backslides, and again, it doesn't have to be some years or months long kind of thing. The Bible talks about the backslider and heart will be filled with his own ways. And, uh, and so it can just be something that happens within, uh, within our minds and our loyalties toward God are, are, are lost there. And, uh, and, and so here is the hope, though, to heed the chastening of the Lord and that if we will repent, He will always restore us back into relationship with Him, which is a, an astonishing work of grace. And therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. God says, I'm going to bring her into a wilderness experience. So the only, I'll cut her off from all of these other voices that are alluring her, and, and so she will finally listen to my voice. And of course, the Babylonian uh, captivity and the Assyrian captivity accomplished that. I will give her her vineyards uh, from there, and the valley of Achor is a door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And so he spoke of her return back into the land and a return of, of hope and joy and worship. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me um, my master. That's a very, very um, interesting uh, phrase there. That uh, it will happen, it shall be in that day, that, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. And what it tells us is that contributing to uh, their backsliding and their spiritual harlotry was a relationship with God uh, in in which uh, was supremely a relationship of servant and uh, master as opposed to husband and wife. So they viewed God supremely. There is a good place for this in our life. We certainly know that God is our master, that Jesus is our master. But we also know he's our, uh, he is our uh, groom, and we know that he's our friend as well. And so, there, of course, there is a servant-master aspect of a relationship with God, but it is not God's intention that that would be the supreme expression uh, of, of the relationship. And so they viewed uh, godly, God supremely as a master to be obeyed because if you didn't obey him, he could make life really, really hard on you as opposed to obeying God out of a love for him uh, and in response to, to his love. And of course, Christianity is a, uh, is a uh, relationship. And uh, uh, obedience is important in our relationship with God, but uh, there are two very different, entirely different qualities of Christian experience uh, that he describes here depending on whether our obedience to God 
Obedience is uniform. It must be there. But the difference is whether my obedience to God is going to come out of a master-servant relationship with him supremely as opposed to a marriage relationship with him supremely. So I think it's good to ask us here this evening, um, why do we obey God and why do we obey his commandments? The privacy of our own hearts. I know you won't shout out. But why do I obey God and why do I obey His commandments? What's my motivation for doing that right now in my relationship with God? And to ask myself, is it because I'm afraid that He's going to hammer me if I don't? Or because I love Him so much and He's been so good to me that I don't want to hurt His heart, so to speak, and do damage to the relationship. And the second always provides the higher and the greater motivation uh, and the stronger motivation for obedience uh, than the first. Because the first one, the servant-master, that's a fear-based relationship with God. And, uh, uh, and it, it makes us far more vulnerable to backsliding or spiritual adultery because it's a lot easier to sin against rules as opposed to sinning against love, sinning against a master as opposed to a gracious, loving, committed uh, spouse. The hardest thing in the world to sin against is love. You can sin against it, but it is the hardest thing in the world to sin uh, against. And so the key is to have uh, a love relationship with God, and it will produce a greater obedience and holiness in our lives than fear ever will. And here's another great test in, in our lives related uh, to this, is um, when we sin, uh, when we fail the Lord, and we know that we've sinned, and we know that we've sinned deliberately, on purpose, and, and then when we're immediately convicted of that sin by the Holy Spirit, is what is, what's the first thought that comes to my mind? And if the first thought that comes to my mind is, oh no, I better make this right with God or He's going to squash me like a fly. He's going to hammer the living daylights out of me. Uh, that's one response, one motivation for uh, a, a repentance but a higher one is to look and say, I have done damage to this relationship. I can sense the Holy Spirit grieved in my heart. My concern is not with what God might do with me. My concern is what my sin has done to him in this relationship. And a Christian relationship, a relationship with God, crosses a threshold into something entirely superior when that becomes the first concern and the first conviction upon committing a sin. What have I done to the heart of this God who has been nothing but good to me? And that will keep a child of God from sinning or backsliding or spiritual adultery in a way that a servant-master relationship uh, never will. Now, if a servant-master relationship is all the only relationship a person has, don't throw it away. It's keeping you safe in the meantime. But we don't want to stop growing until we've moved into this higher place and higher motivation 
for uh, obedience to, uh, to the Lord. And um, verse 17, For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall not be remembered by their name uh, anymore. And so here's this beautiful thing where here he marries her out of this prostitution, and he says, I'm going to uh, so overwhelm her in the future uh, with myself that I will make her forgive all of her other lovers, uh, even their names, uh, all of the other idols and gods that she served. And in that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and with the creeping things uh, of the ground. Bow and a sword of battle I will shatter from the earth and make them to lie down in safety, a return of, of life and peace and safety uh, to the land. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall uh, know uh, the, the Lord. And so this great promise that he, uh, that he uh, makes here that they're going to enter into a spiritually intimate relationship with God that will never be uh, interrupted again. And again, this speaks ultimately of the kingdom age uh, after Jesus' second uh, uh, coming when His righteousness and His justice and His mercy and His faithfulness, who and what He alone is uh, as God will mean far more to them than than any material thing or any kind of sensual uh, uh, pleasure. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they will answer the earth. And the earth will answer with grain and new wine and with oil. They shall um, uh, answer Jezreel, talking about the prosperity of the land. Again, Jezreel is, 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 speaks of the idea of scattering. And so here is uh, the, the grain and the new wine and the oil uh, uh, scattered, uh, uh, plentiful uh, in, in the land in that day. And then I will sow her for myself uh, in the earth, and I will have mercy for her who had not obtained mercy, and then I will say to those who are not my people, uh, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. And so with the repentance, it will give God the opportunity to uh, bless them in the way that he longed to uh, all along, and once again, uh, Israel will uh, be set aside to the Lord and for His pleasure. So this, this beautiful contrast of the heart of God, and, and as we close here, you just uh, think about it and, and, um, and uh, the, the darkness again of, of the cloth that the diamonds are, are put on. And uh, think about uh, marrying a prostitute. And you marry a prostitute and you would think that she would be faithful and grateful for the rest of her life uh, at the grace that was shown to you. And then she leaves you uh, again for prostitution. I mean, you almost have to take a walk with this book to think about what a violation of the human heart is described here as representing the violation of, of their spiritual adultery against the Lord. 
And so he's just unflinching in how he puts it forward. But then he will never allow that to be the message that we're left with. He always leaves us in them with a message of hope that with repentance from sin, a confession of sin, and a return to Him, a, He is eager then to restore the relationship. If He wasn't eager, He wouldn't have spoken through Hosea to them. And if He wasn't eager to restore relationship with us, when we sin for a minute or we sin for a year, then He wouldn't convict us by His Holy Spirit. And so the beauty of God's love, there is nothing like it, in the entire world, not only in saving us, but also in the relationship that we have with Him after being saved. He is wonderful. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this portrait and the healthy thing that both of those pictures that you put side by side, the, the, what it accomplishes within us by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you never give up on us. We thank you that you keep wooing us. We thank you that no matter where we go, you'll, you'll keep sending your prophets, you'll keep sending your Holy Spirit. And even if the the wayward stray is but for a minute or but for a night. You never leave us in that place, but you woo us back into intimacy with you. We are humbled by your love. We are grateful for your love, and we are deeply grateful for your commitment to this relationship that you have initiated with us. We confess that we are not worthy of the smallest bit of it, Lord. And it makes us love you all the more. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.